time has come is we've got to go the extra step. From the Political Science Department at UW-Madison. I'll compromise. We want to get the job done. I'm Addison Lathers. Geez, they're, they're, trying to, they're trying to balance the power here. And I'm Claire Salmi. It's a patriotic responsibility, for God's sake. And this is 1050 Bascom. Today on the podcast, we're grateful to talk with Professor Howard Schwaber, a longtime friend of the pod, to discuss the Supreme Court's ruling that overturns Roe v. Wade and effectively ends our constitutional right to abortion. The ruling allows many states across the nation to immediately outlaw the procedure, including here in Wisconsin. Professor Schwaber is, of course, well known to many of our listeners. He's an award-winning researcher and teacher and holds both a JD and a PhD. Professor Schreiber teaches many of the constitutional law courses in our department here at UW, and we have so much to ask him about today. Thank you so much for being with us today. It's great to have you back on the podcast. And oh, my we, pleasure. Thanks for having me. We have so much to ask you, so let's jump right in here. Many of our listeners grew up with Roe v. Wade, and we want to get into a bit of the history of the Supreme Court's role in creating a right to abortion and contraception, but we want to start with the court's ruling on June 24th. So sure. would you be able to give us an overview of what the majority ruled in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization and on what legal grounds that decision was made? Sure. Well, the short version is, of course, the Supreme Court overruled Roe versus Wade. We all know that. Uh, thus ending judicial recognition of a constitutional right to abortion. That by itself is obviously an extraordinarily consequential event. It raises an enormous number of questions and issues that are going to be back before the courts in years to come. And frankly, in answer to a lot of questions, my response is likely to be nobody knows yet, but we'll find out eventually. But in terms of how the court or how the majority, the leader's opinion, came to the conclusion that Roe versus Wade should be overruled, that points us to what I think is a much bigger and more important story, frankly, uh, even than the loss of constitutional protection for abortion rights, which I fully understand is enormously important for millions and millions of people, uh, particularly women, but not only. Um, but the bigger story is that in overruling Roe versus Wade, bigger for my profession, Alito announced a whole new way of thinking about constitutional rights, a departure from at least 70 years of established ways of reasoning, not of outcomes necessarily, but of reasoning about the questions. Is this a constitutionally protected right? How far does it go? Uh, and, and that same new approach, which I'll get into in a minute, also appears in the gun case that came down on Thursday, Bruin. And oddly enough, it does not appear in the uh, religion case that came down today. So guns, the free exercise of religion and abortion, all three of those tremendously consequential, tremendously controversial, tremendously important constitutional uh, arenas or, or areas of inquiry have been completely blown up in the last four days, making this a complicated time to talk about the court. In order to explain Alito's theory, I have to back up a little bit and address the question you raised, which is where did the right to abortion come from in the first place? Historically, uh, all of these questions arise with the adoption of the 14th Amendment, which this wasn't understood immediately, but eventually the 14th Amendment comes to be understood to mean that rights contained in the Constitution apply against the states, which previously they had not. And that's something that's hard for people to get their heads around. Prior to, for example, the 1920s, there was no theory that any state had to respect the free speech clause. It just didn't exist. So to take that one example, 
the entire history of free speech jurisprudence is 100 years long, not 250 years long. In the case of the religion clauses, the free exercise and the establishment clause, uh, the 1940s are the relevant time. That is, prior to that time, it simply had never been suggested that these rights applied to states. So all of this is in the context of that development of that post-Civil War way of thinking about rights that apply to the states. And very early on, the approach that emerged was something that came to be called substantive due process, which said that the word liberty in the due process clause of the 14th Amendment means that there are a range of unspecified but broadly defined rights that are protected and that states may not infringe upon. And the very earliest cases talking about this had to do with parents' authority to control the education of their children. So for example, uh, a state that tried to outlaw all instruction uh, in school not in English was challenged by German-speaking parents. And the court said, no, you can't have laws like that. Parents are perfectly free to decide their kids should be educated in, in German. Uh, that's part of the rights of parents. Well, where does the Constitution mention a right of parents? Of course, it doesn't. But it was part of this liberty idea. Jumping forward and skipping a, rather a lot of historical development, uh, as one has to do, in the 1970s, the idea that this word liberty might encompass something that we now call a right to privacy started to become very important. There had been a slew of different areas in which the word privacy had been, and the phrase a right to privacy had been employed, but it was always very specific. So in the Fourth Amendment, when it says you can't be subject to unreasonable search and seizure, when courts talked about that, they talk about a right to privacy that protects you against the police searching your papers, to take one example. So the phrase and the idea was around, but it's only in the 70s that you get the idea of a, a freestanding right to privacy that is broad and encompassing. And the very first thing that it referred to was contraception, more specifically, the use of contraception by married couples. Connecticut had passed a law banning contraception, which no distinction between married couples and single people. Uh, this is a time when the Catholic Church was extremely powerful in Connecticut. Ending contraception at that time was a very major goal of, of the church. And so in Griswold versus Connecticut, the Supreme Court said, no, this right to privacy includes whatever exactly it means, it's broad enough that it includes that you can't go have the police busting married couples for using contraception. A couple of years later, that was extended to people who are not married. After all, this is a right. Why does getting married suddenly cause it to exist when it didn't before? And as we go down that road, you pretty quickly, 1973, the, the, I'm sorry, these were late 60s cases. 1973, we get to Roe versus Wade. And Roe versus Wade did not say there's a right to abortion. Roe versus Wade said there's a right to privacy broad enough to include a woman's decision whether to terminate a pregnancy. So the whole framing of this question as a right to abortion is kind of wrongheaded. The question, and Alito honed right into this question, is should we recognize these broadly defined rights to privacy at all? And Alito's answer is basically no. That is, this entire approach is wrong. And we need to replace it with an approach that asks, and this can get a little complicated, but the simple version, with an approach that asks, is the right in question one that is historically recognized? Now, the reason that that sounds very simple, and it sounds like something that grows out of what's called originalism, but it's actually a little more complicated than that, because there are two sort of caveats. First, when we ask, is this right historically recognized, it has to be deeply rooted meaning it has to be recognized for a long time up to and before the moment of origin, so the adoption of the 14th Amendment, for example. So we have a fixed date, 1868, when the 14th Amendment is adopted, and we'll look at everything that came before that and up to that point in order to decide, is this right deeply rooted in our history? Secondly, there's a principle of what's called specificity. Precisely the right in question has to be shown to have been entrenched. So it's not enough to show, for example, that abortion has always been tolerated. 
or has in some places been tolerated or has been legal at various times. And it's not enough to show there's always been a notion of a general right to privacy. You would have to show that for many years prior to 1868 generations, the, the opinion goes back to the 14th century, um, which I think was laying it on a little bit thick, but you have to show that for generations up to 1868, there was a recognition that the choice of abortion specifically was not merely permitted, but was recognized as a constitutional right. And of course, if you make that the bar, it's a very, very hard bar to get over. But that's what Alito did. Thomas immediately said, well, the implications are we should overrule a slew of other cases. Obergefell, granting a right to same-sex marriage. Uh, the contraception cases should be overruled. All of these cases should be overruled because none of them, none of the privacy-related cases could possibly pass this test. Um, take one example, you can't possibly say parents have a right to control what goes on in public schools. There were no public schools. Public schools don't exist until the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century. So it's just very, very hard to draw an analogy there. I do not in any way want to be heard to be diminishing the devastating consequences of this ruling for women all over America. But in some ways, the even bigger takeaway is that this court is radically redefining the basis on which all rights under the Constitution can be defined. And a particularly important set of those rights are these rights that we're talking about, among others, these privacy rights. So let's go a little bit deeper into Clarence Thomas's concurring decision. Do you expect that the, the court will take up in the near future questions of same-sex intimacy and same-sex marriage? And then can you also talk about the role in which the court then, if taking up these questions, the role of a court in turning into more of a political actor than something that's supposed to be above politics? Sure. I should say that there's a lot of disagreement about what I'm about. I mean, I, I have a, I'll make a prediction, although I'm usually much better at post-diction than prediction. I can tell you what the score was of games that occurred in the past it was almost 100% accuracy. Uh, it's the future ones that are hard. I think Yogi Berra once said that. You know, interestingly, I really don't think this is about the court being a political actor. On the contrary, I think these justices are what might be described as true believers. They're working from first principles, and they don't care about the political consequences. I think that's precisely the point. Uh, Thomas, Alito, Barrett, right? these are justices, uh, in, in my reading, who were chosen in part precisely because they will not bow to public opinion. Remember that after the late 70s in particular, Republican voters and the Republican base, as we call it, for years and decades, urged presidents to appoint Supreme Court justices who would strike down Roe. And year after year after year, they were disappointed. Republican presidents appointed numerous Supreme Court justices. At one point, it was seven out of the nine justices had been appointed by Republican presidents. And nonetheless, Roe was not overruled. And every time the issue came up, most notably in Casey, the problem was that Republican appointees, even some who were known personally uh, to take the pro-life position, would say things like, well, if we overturn Roe, it'll cause a political firestorm. Or, well, if we overturn Roe, it will delegitimize the court, make it look like a political actor. Or right? It was precisely those political worries that prevented those prior conservative justices from taking this step. This new generation, these three Trump judges, plus Alito and Thomas, uh, seems to have no fear. As I said, there have been three cases in four days, each one of which has completely blown up a major area of constitutional doctrine. And there's more to come, both in the rest of this week and certainly next term. And so I, th I think it's actually uh, quite wrong to accuse these justices of being political actors. If anything, the problem is that they're ideologues who don't care about politics and therefore don't care about consequences. So back to the question you started out with, which I think is the most important point. 
Thomas says, look, if we did this, we really immediately should strike down Obergefell, we should strike down Lawrence, we should strike down the contraception cases. Thomas actually wants to go back to the 1870s. And I don't mean roll rights protections back to the 1870s, but take the analysis back to the 1870s and start over. He wants to get rid of this whole way of reasoning and replace it with what's called the privileges and immunities clause. Uh, there's no telling where that would lead. It doesn't necessarily mean that you know, rights would not be recognized or would be recognized. Here, the radicalism is more the method that he just wants to abandon a century of built-up jurisprudence and start over because it doesn't seem to him to fit his, his principles. Um, this is the reason Scalia once said, uh, speaking of himself, I'm an originalist, but I'm not a nut. And Thomas was the context of him making that comment. What are the other justices? Well, Alito has joined Thomas in an opinion explicitly calling for Obergefell to be overruled. Roberts wrote a dissenting opinion in Obergefell that was practically a scream of rage and despair. So I don't know whether he would vote to overturn it because of these political considerations, but it's quite clear he would like to see it overturned or he rather, he wished it had never been decided. That much is very obvious. That's two votes, maybe three right there. If we look at the opinion, Alito parses his words very, very carefully. He says very carefully, abortion is a unique case. It's different from contraception. It's different from parents educating their children because it's a huge moral issue and so on and because it involves life. And therefore, he says, nothing we say here in overruling Roe should be understood to mean that the cases that Roe relied upon were wrong, right? So when Roe is decided, Blackman, who writes the opinion, says, oh, look, we have all these other privacy cases with these contraception cases, these parent cases. We're just applying that same principle to a new situation. Alito now says, no, it doesn't apply to this new situation, but we're not casting doubt on any of the prior precedents that Blackman depended upon. The obvious Omission there is subsequent decisions. Cases like Obergefell and Lawrence may be argued to rely on a version of privacy that's established in Roe and Casey. That is, the argument could be made that the abortion decisions push the idea of privacy or intimate relations beyond what had been the case in the contraception cases or the parental cases. And therefore, they are vulnerable to this analysis, even if the earlier ones were not. And Alito's wording in this paragraph is really cagey and really ambiguous. And the best conclusion I've been able to reach is that it's deliberately ambiguous as to whether he is calling for cases like Obergefell uh, to be revisited and overturned uh, or merely alluding to that possibility as an illustration. Thomas, as I say, is clearly eager to see these things overruled. Kavanaugh's concurring opinion doesn't say anything very clearly one way or the other. And at a certain point, a lot of this is how much do you take these guys at their word? Uh, we know that a couple of these justices during their confirmation hearings, both in their testimony and in private conversation with senators like Manchin and Collins, said, don't worry, I will never vote to overrule Roe. Uh, we know this because the senators have said so quite loudly and quite clearly. So frankly, I don't think it works very well at this moment to simply say we will trust them to stick to whatever they have said. I think you have to ask the political question, is this something they would likely want to do? My feeling is yes. I believe that next term or the term after, we are likely to see a case that poses the question of whether Obergefell should be overruled. And by my count, there are four votes, at least, to reach that conclusion. A lot of my colleagues disagree. They think, no, no, they would never be that reckless. Uh, they're too politically savvy for that. And so one of the questions becomes, as you look at these justices, do you think they're political actors? Uh, or on the contrary, do you think they're simply ideologues uh, who don't care about political consequences? So off of that point, and you mentioned Casey a little bit in your thoughts, I wanted to bring up the dissenting opinion in which um, in the second to last paragraph, the dissent brings up how O'Connor and Kennedy and Souter and Casey, 
they described them as judges of wisdom and um, saying that they wouldn't have won any contest for their ideological purity, but for making the rule of law stronger and leaving this country better, those justices would have been that. So is the current moment of the court, are there growing tensions between these justices? Oh, we're far past the growing tension stage. Uh, there's complete division. Uh, the release of the draft opinion of Dobbs, regardless of who one thinks released that draft, I, I have a theory, everybody has a theory, but regardless of who released that draft, the reactions are made it clear that the justices are bitterly divided. And again, it's not just a division about abortion. Uh, it's a division about abortion and about guns and about free exercise and about the establishment clause. All issues of constitutional rights are on the table. And you know, more than two generations of understanding of how we reason about the question of whether something is a constitutional right have been thrown out the window. This is a moment of constitutional revolution. This is a moment of dramatic change. This is not, this is not normal constitutional politics. Uh, this is a moment of extraordinary change. Uh, you know, uh, instant history, as they say. So there's no question that the divisions are deep uh, and bitter. And as you point out, actually, in the, in the lines that you quoted, the dissent calls these guys out on the grounds of saying they're imposing a test of ideological purity and they're not thinking enough about the legitimacy of the court and the political consequences and so on. What this gets to is what's called stare decisis. And it's certainly worth bringing that up because it's important. Stare decisis is a principle that says, if a Supreme Court precedent has been in place for a while, it ought not to be overturned without a really good reason. And really good reason usually means something like circumstances have changed or we have come to have a new understanding of basic principles. So for example, in Brown versus Board of Education, when they overruled Plessy, they said, right, we just, we, we just see things differently now. We just understand the world differently than people did at the time of Plessy. And this is just appalling and unacceptable and we overrule it. So one of the key tests for stare decisis uh, is reliance. Now, here's an important point. Stare decisis only matters with respect to an opinion that you think is wrong. If you thought the opinion were right, you wouldn't need to invoke stare decisis. You would just say, oh, that's a good opinion. Let's keep it. So anytime we're talking about stare decisis, somebody is making an argument that we ought to keep in place a ruling that that person actually thinks is wrong. And that's what happened in Casey. Justices who disagreed with Roe, wisdom, as the current dissenters say, wisdom usually means agreeing with me, but uh, show the wisdom, according to our dissenters, to say that, well, people have relied for a generation this was 1996, have relied for a generation on having access to abortion. That kind of reliance in people's lives is one of our standard tests for stare decisis. Therefore, even though we think Roe was wrong, we're not going to vote to overturn it because of this principle. There's a footnote in the Dobbs Alito opinion, footnote 48. It's two and a half pages long, and it's a, just a list of instances where the Supreme Court has overturned past decisions. And the po Alito's point, which is well taken, is that First of all, lots of precedents get overturned. Of course they do. So it's never been the case that stare decisis is an ironclad rule. You may never overturn an earlier rule. Secondly, there's something troubling about this idea of you should keep it in place even though you think it's wrong. And you know, perhaps it's hard to see because of our various beliefs about the right to abortion. Imagine it were something different. Imagine it were something like, do criminal defendants have a right to a lawyer at trial? And someone said, well, maybe they should, but we're not going to say that they should because a long time ago we said that they shouldn't. And by stare decisis, we're just going to keep that in place. That would feel very different, wouldn't it? So Alito's point is that stare decisis is precisely a political calculation. It's a political calculation that frequently in history has given way to more important concerns uh, than, than popular politics. I mean, the classic example is a case called Barnett, 
uh, about the Pledge of Allegiance and compelled speech. And this is a, way back in the 1940s, the Supreme Court ruled you couldn't force children to speak the Pledge of Allegiance. If it violated their, this was before the words under God were in the pledge. There's nothing to do with religion. You simply couldn't force children to recite the Pledge of Allegiance because you couldn't compel them to say something they didn't believe, which is great, except that only two years earlier, the Supreme Court had reached the opposite conclusion. So in that, the reason that's the most famous instance is in the space of two years, they just completely reversed their view. Right? So relying on stare decisis is a bit of a desperate argument in my view. Uh, it effectively concedes, yeah, this might be wrong, but we'd like you to keep it anyway. And that certainly is not the sort of argument that's going to impress people like Alito. That will be an argument that comes up in the context. If there is a challenge to Obergefell, that will be the challenge. People will say, no, no, couples have gotten married and relied on this. And they planned families on this. There's been reliance. Stare decisis requires that we keep this wrong opinion in place. I don't see, and again, some of my colleagues disagree with me. Uh, this is speculation. But I don't see these particular justices as being swayed by that kind of analysis. But don't forget, in this footnote, 48, uh, that I mentioned, the very first case cited is Obergefell, because Obergefell overruled earlier cases. So, you know, a sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander sort of thing. I would expect these justices to say, if Obergefell could overrule a precedent, then we can overrule Obergefell. Just as a quick follow-up, you said that this type of issue, especially with abortion, has been contested in the Supreme Court for a number of years, since Roe v. Wade. Mm -hmm. So why now is the time for conservative justices to really pull on stare decisis? Do you have speculation about why it works I, now I, and I, they didn't I, dare I don't think any speculation is required. President Trump appointed three uh, justices, and that gave them the five they needed. Roberts has, at least most of the time, let's say frequently, express concern about the institutional legitimacy of the court, principles like stare decisis, the political position of the court, public opinion. And so he was never willing to go along with the most radical moves. But with the addition of, of uh, Barrett and Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, plus Thomas and Alito who are already there, that's no longer the case. He is no longer in control of this court. There's not only a five member conservative majority, there's a five member radical majority. And again, all I can say is, you know, Dobbs is part of this, but also look at Bruin versus New York Rifle and Pistol Club, which is the gun case that came down a few days ago, um, and Kennedy versus Bremerton School District, which is the religion case that came down today. There isn't time to go into all three of them, but I'll ask you to take my word for it that each of these is absolutely dramatic in the way that it abandons decades of established uh, ways of proceeding and ways of thinking about constitutional questions in favor of a brand new sweeping and internally very consistent, I should add, and an analytical framework. One that is very favorable to certain rights and very disfavorable to others. We're talking about there being this new framework as a result of these recent Supreme Court cases, but, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think the average voter is necessarily thinking about these court cases in the way of legal framework and special constitutional interpretation. Would you agree with that? Of course. Uh, political actors only look at outcomes. For that matter, most of us only look at outcomes, unless you're a specialist in this area or in a class on the subject at the time. Uh, right? Listen to the way even very responsible journalists, except for those who are court specialists, cover a, a, a situation like Dobbs. They say, what happened? Roe got overturned. What's the rest of the discussion? What's going to happen next? What laws will get passed? What like, There's no particular interest in asking, well, wait a minute, what was the theory behind overturning Roe and where might that theory go next and what does this mean, right? Well, specialists always see the world in weird ways. I think, though, the reason I want to emphasize this and, and uh, new framework, as I'm calling it, is twofold. First, I don't think it's as simple as saying that these justices don't like same-sex marriage or these justices don't like abortion. I think that's true, 
But I don't think that this outcome reduces to simply these are our policy preferences. I really try to resist that conclusion. Um, I don't like it when it's applied to liberal justices, and I don't like it when it's applied to conservative justices. And the reason is not that they're above politics, but that judicial politics are different from ordinary party politics. And they play out in different ways. There's a reason we use this phrase, constitutional politics. So yes, this is very intense, red of tooth and claw constitutional politics. It's not quite reducible uh, to, the, to the policy preferences. So for example, um, I think this court might have a serious problem if Congress were to try to pass a national ban on abortions. I think it's a matter of the Commerce Clause and the scope of congressional powers. This court might say, no, that's a bad idea. Uh, I think, for example, uh, Kavanaugh's comment I've already mentioned, I don't know how many other justices will agree with him, but it's entirely possible that his colleagues will follow his lead. And so a state like Texas will say, it's a crime to leave this state to get an abortion. They'll say, no, you can't do that. Um, so I don't doubt uh, for a long variety of reasons that each one of these individuals is opposed to abortion and, and, and thinks it's, it's a wrong and is opposed to same-sex marriage and all of those things. But the theory is much deeper and much more sweeping than that. And its consequences will show up in places that don't obviously uh, relate to abortion or sexual intimacy, like, for example, the religion clauses. So not to fall to the vice of only talking about outcomes, like you said, but Let's talk about the outcomes for states like Wisconsin in which abortion has been banned. And now that that decision is given to the states to figure out how they're going to treat it, what are the legal options for states like Wisconsin where abortion has been banned moving forward? Does it have to only come from the legislature? So now we're into politics rather than law. So it's already the case that a bunch of attorneys general in Wisconsin have said they would not enforce the abandoned abortions. Governor Evers has already said he intends to take executive action. So all the political actors are positioning themselves. Uh, and I don't mean that cynically. In this course of their duties, they're taking steps to promote what they believe is, is the right and best outcome. At the end of the day, though, both in general and specifically in Wisconsin, uh, the legislature is, has the final say. Well, the voters have the final say. And let, me, let me back up a little bit. Among some Democrats, there is an assumption that this decision will strengthen Democratic vote in the midterms that are coming up, that there'll be an outpouring of, of outrage, uh, particularly among women voters, will flock to the Democratic banner, and this will be a great political gain for that party. I am not at all sure that that's true, uh, for a couple of reasons. One, when you look at something like polling data on abortion, you get a certain picture of the national mood. But it looks very different if you break it down state by state. There's, there's a phenomenon known as the great sort, which is that over the last 20 years, it's more and more the case. Let's use red and blue. Some places are red places, and some places are blue places, more than was true historically. In all places, the biggest divide is urban versus rural. But if you look state by state, red states have become redder and blue states have become bluer over the last generation or so. So if you now ask, okay, how does the politics of this play out in particular states? Well, in some states, it will strengthen Republican candidates, take strident anti-abortion pro-life positions, and they will compete with each other in the primary to see who can go the farthest to say we will throw women in jail and so on and so on. In other states, it'll be the opposite. Uh, in Democratic primaries, candidates will compete with each other to see who can go the farthest to say, I am a believer in choice and I will do the most to protect it. I am not sure that between the parties, right? This is, this is what our politics has become. It's become mostly intra-party. That is debates within each party in the primaries due to gerrymandering, due to voter suppression, due to a lot of things, a lot of practices that have, uh, in my view, degraded the democratic political process. 
a lot of our political fights no longer look like national debates. They look more like factions within a party of the sort you get in a one-party system. Right? It's not the case there's no politics in communist China. It's that the fights take place among factions in the communist party. Well, we have a double version of that. We have fights among factions in the Republican party and fights among factions in the Democratic party and very rarely between the two. So with a possible exception of a presidential election, and I'm not all sure about the effects there, in terms of politics between now and then, I think it's going to remain very much state by state and red states are going to get redder. That is, they're going to adopt more increasingly punitive, increasingly draconian laws restricting the right to abortion and not only the right to abortion, but surveillance on the conduct of pregnant women investigations into the causes of miscarriages. Um, there's a whole slew of criminalizing impulses that follow from there not being a right to abortion. So for example, if abortion is a crime, then assisting someone in getting an abortion is a crime. Attempting to get an abortion is a crime. Conspiring to help someone get an abortion is a crime. Start spreading those concepts out and see where they take you. And the answer is it's a whole new area of law enforcement. Well, that brings us to the attorneys general. The attorneys general say, well, we're not going to enforce that kind of nonsense. We don't believe in that. Well, you serve at the pleasure of the governor or you're elected, depending. In Wisconsin, uh, it may depend on county or district as to what attorneys general and what judges will lose re-election because of their stance on abortion. Don't forget, we elect in Wisconsin people at four different levels here, the legislature, the governor, the judges, and the attorneys general. So there's an enormous and complicated and interlocking set of political voter decisions to be made. And going back to an earlier point, these are really complicated questions. One of the critiques of judicial elections in general is that the work that judges do isn't the kind of thing that easily translates into ordinary uh, political campaigns. And so the result is that the campaigns become about things that are irrelevant, things that have nothing to do with the judge's actual approach to judging, but instead various kinds of stand-in issues designed to identify a judge with a candidate with a party or an ideology or whatever. This is taking that even further. Uh, and so I fear that what we will see is uh, Alito in one of the least convincing sentences in the opinion uh, said that he thought that overruling Roe versus Wade would reduce divisiveness and conflict over the issue of abortion in American politics. That may be the single most jaw-dropping statement in the entire opinion. In states like Wisconsin, which is in fact a purple state, a deeply divided state, this is going to become a matter of bitter contestation. There are separation of powers questions. I would not be surprised to see our Republican-dominated legislature once again try and take a power away from the Democratic governor in order to secure their preferred position on this situation. I would not be at all surprised in the next election cycle. This issue drives the election of a Republican governor, who in turn yanks all the Democratic-leaning attorneys general, or they may lose in a wave election anyway, those who are, who are elected, uh, and instructs his Department of Justice, State Department of Justice, to act these cases with utmost vigor. There are lots of possibilities, but it's all going to be very messy, and it's all very much going to depend on the state-level democratic process. So stepping back from the politics again for a moment, um, we were wondering if you could talk about the contrast between this decision in Dobbs regarding the taking away of an unenumerated right to an abortion while last week's decision in Bruin expanded gun rights. And That's a great question, and thank you, because it gives me a chance to come back to that whole framework thing that I didn't really explain. So at first glance, these two cases look like opposites. One upheld a right, one denied a right. Or if you want to put it a different way, one upheld the state's authority to regulate something, one denied the state's authority to regulate something. And those are, of course, two sides of the same coin. In fact, I think they're entirely consistent. They're mostly consistent. So the consistency is this principle of deeply rooted in our history, combined with that principle of specificity. I know I mentioned it before, but forgive me for saying it again very quickly. Where the question is, is there a right? 
and it's about an unenumerated right, one of these substantive due process or implied rights. Then, says the court in Dobbs, we will ask, is recognition of this right defined specifically deeply rooted in our history? Bruin was the reverse case. Bruin involves, according to, according to Justice Thomas, an enumerated right. Justice Thomas says the right of gun uh, carrying is expressly stated in the Second Amendment. That may be news to some of us who have read the Second Amendment and don't see those words, uh, but he is treating this at least as a, an enumerated, a, a textually specified right. So different from the abortion situation where you have a, according to this theory, textually specified right, it's still the same historically rootedness test, but now it applies not to the right, but to the state's authority to regulate. So in Bruin, the gun case, the question was, is there a deeply rooted historical tradition of states regulating guns? And again, that principle of specificity came into play. That is, the question was not, is there a deeply rooted historical tradition of regulating guns? Because the answer is yes, absolutely. The question though was, is there a deeply rooted historical tradition of regulating guns in precisely the way that New York is regulating them? That's that specificity thing. So put the two together, put them next to each other. Is there a deeply rooted tradition of a specific and precise right of abortion? Is there a deeply rooted tradition of regulating guns in exactly this way? I, I said before that the state authority and rights are two sides of the same coin. Each of these cases is two sides of this intellectual coin. What's startling is that it replaces a swath of tests and doctrines and decades old practices and just wipes them out in a single sweep and replaces them with this, frankly, it's soundbite version of constitutional analysis. There are many more things that can be said here. Uh, this specific treatment of the historical record in both cases has been criticized as the most obvious kind of cherry picking and, and frankly, um, dishonest treatment of the historical record. In, in many ways, these cases are a caricature of originalism and, and great illustration of why people criticize originalism in the first place. But those are just matters of, a, you know, do you approve or do you like it? The important thing to recognize is that this combination of deeply rooted historical practice and specificity, that's the, the lens through which rights claims will be tested going forward. And that's a lens uh, that leads to very, very different results from the kind that we've seen since at least the 1940s. So we were talking about just how frightened should people be of where this might go, particularly people uh, who are or who love people who are gay or trans or anyone who knows anyone who might become pregnant at some point and, and want to have the option of not uh, carrying that pregnancy to term. How scared should we be? And my answer is, um, I do not see any possibility of the nation as a whole going into a kind of Margaret Atwood Handmaid's Tale kind of nightmare scenario, because there's nothing like a national overwhelming majority will to ban abortion. Every national poll ever done shows remarkably stable numbers uh, in which a large majority of people want some regulation on abortion, but definitely don't want abortion to be banned. Uh, and then there's extremes at each end that take either the no regulation or ban all abortions position. So I don't see that becoming an issue that would enable a party, say the Republican party to capture the national government. On the other hand, our states are increasingly red and blue. This phenomenon called the big sort, which people for a generation have been increasingly moving to live with people with the same kind of political views, plus all of the corruptions of our political process that have led, made the primaries and the intra-party fights more important than the actual elections have led to states like Texas, for example, being dominated by, the population of Texas has very mixed political beliefs, but the political leadership of Texas is dominated by extreme red positions. 
and the political leadership of California is dominated by extreme blue positions, even though the people of California have very, very mixed views on a wide range of issues. So what I can easily see happening, and in fact, I think this is likely, is that there will be states which will have truly draconian bans, not only bans on abortion, but laws about uh, sexual activity, uh, uh, invasive law enforcement mechanisms to try and enforce these laws, laws disempowering gay people and trans people, and LGBTQ plus people in general. And I do not have any trouble envisioning a situation in which in 10 years, it could be so bad that if you are a vulnerable person, if you fall into one of these categories or disfavored by some of these regimes, you might simply not want to travel there. You might want to be very careful about where you go, not only where you live, but even where you pass through, uh, lest something go wrong. And uh, that's a nightmare scenario, but I think it's a plausible nightmare scenario. I was saying also that the single most interesting comment I heard, I think, in a twisted sort of way, comes from Senator Josh Hawley. Senator Josh Hawley is not a beloved figure, but he's not stupid. Although he says crazy things, I think he says them with intent. And what he said was he expects, as a result of this ruling, to see people migrating to red or blue states, to go to places where the state government shares their views on abortion. And what he said that was so interesting was, he said, in terms of the electoral college, this will help Republicans, which is a remarkably forthright recognition uh, or admission uh, of, of the way our presidential elections do not run on simple majorities. So he figures that the kind of states that will be uh, strongly pro-choice are the kind of states that are already blue and won't add any new states on the Democratic side, the Electoral College calculation, but that the red states will attract people and specifically you know, do so enough to add another representative in, in the House, which gets another Electoral College vote. So he's really, and I don't think he's alone, is thinking about this in terms of its political consequences on a state-by-state -state calculation basis. And I think that's where the politics of this will play out. Voting with our feet may become a much bigger deal than it has been. Uh, we usually, particularly in the last 10 years, have seen large numbers of people vote with their feet because of economic issues, going to places where taxes are lower, going to places where rents are lower, going to places with our jobs. It's been a while, I think, since we've had a political divide on an issue so profoundly important to so many people that it could genuinely cause people to choose where they want to be because of this issue. But I don't think that that's a, impossible. I don't even think that's unlikely. I think this gets into the question of what the implications of this case are for democracy more broadly in America. I think that, first of all, a, a much larger trend, uh, of which this is only a piece. Uh, I don't think that the Dobbs decision by itself augurs damage to American democracy. I think it's the product of damage to American democracy uh, in a whole bunch of ways. But this gets a little bit back to why I was saying it's so important to focus on the analysis and not only the outcome, because this historical specificity approach that I've been describing is one that removes the Supreme Court from one of its important roles, which is historically the Supreme Court has been an institution that buffers the conflicts, political conflicts, that tames them a little bit, uh, keeps certain questions from being a matter of political contest, contestation, keeps one side from utterly dominating the other side in some particular issue or particular area, forces the sides to debate the issue in terms that do not lend themselves to extreme positions, but despite, you know, forces a kind of constitutional language and vocabulary, um, and maintains a set of institutions, democratic institutions, that channel conflict. This court, the Roberts court, seems much more inclined to throw gasoline on the fires. They have made decisions, we haven't talked about this, from the area of democracy, gerrymandering, campaign finance, all that stuff, that have 
encouraged and even required that parties be allowed to cater to the most extreme elements in their coalitions and make that the basis for seeking power. They've encouraged and even required rules that give, for example, wealth inordinate influence over election outcomes, which means, of course, also outside wealth. It's not only the wealthy people who live in your district, it's the money that is spent for that purpose. Uh, and now they are, in the last four days, they've dramatically removed themselves from having any role in tempering the conflicts or limiting the extremity of what might be proposed in the areas of guns, abortion, and religion. And as I say, I, mean, I don't think we're done. I think affirmative action is next and will be on the docket next semester and will be struck down based on the same deeply rooted, historically specific kind of test. And I don't think that's the end of it either. As I say, I believe we're going through a constitutional revolution, which is always a tumultuous time. Uh, as you point out, uh, it's happening at a time when the democratic institutions are themselves unsteady. I, I don't want to say that they're cratering. I don't think we're about to devolve into civil war, but we're certainly devolving and have already devolved into a particularly ugly form of politics. So the timing is not favorable <laughs> for this to happen. And I don't think it's a coincidence that Gallup just released a poll that finds that approval of the Supreme Court has dropped as an institution has dropped to 25%. That's those who approve strongly or approve somewhat. That's the lowest it's ever been. And to go back to a point I started with, I don't think these justices care. Thomas's, the book about Clarence Thomas's jurisprudence is called First Principles. These are not in the literal sense, uh, they, they are religious thinkers, not in the literal sense that I think they're driven by a particular faith or, or, or dogma, but in the sense that they reason in the way that religious people reason from first principles and core moral precepts, and then we'll work out the consequences later. That's very different from the kind of pragmatic, policy-oriented, politically sensitive approach that we're used to seeing from the Supreme Court in varying degrees for many, many decades. One reason this is taking people so much by surprise is that political scientists in particular have spent a generation telling anyone who listen, no, no, courts only do what they think the politics will allow them to do. They're political actors. They will never do anything that they think would put them too far out of public opinion. And so now everyone is shocked because this court is not acting. These, these justices are not acting like political actors. And we almost aren't sure how to say that. Uh, it's like we don't, have a, we don't have a vocabulary to describe uh, ideologues, which is what I believe that these people are. Interesting. I apologize in advance for this question because number one, it's purely political. And number two, it's asking you to be predictive again. But do you have any inkling as to how this might affect elections that are happening later this year? So fortunately in American public life, being wrong even consistently and repeatedly over a period of decades, doesn't seem to disqualify someone from being an expert, which relieves me greatly. And I, I depend on that principle myself. So as I say, I'm truly not sure. To a certain extent, the politics of abortion were baked into the parties long ago. It's a kind of a one-sided ratchet. That is, people who are strongly pro-life became Republican. I don't think all pro-choice people fled the Republican Party. But I think anyone who was strongly pro-life became Republican a while ago. So I don't see a lot of movement of voters. I think, I mean, so for example, the Texas GOP, which is the Texas GOP, what do you want from me? As you probably heard, just came up with a platform that is just wild. It calls for repealing the Voting Rights Act. It calls for a referendum to see if Texas should secede. Uh, and it says not only that same-sex marriage should be abandoned, but it says that homosexuality is evil and abnormal and sort of the kind of language we haven't heard in public political discourse, frankly, in a while. The chairman of the Texas Log Cabin Republicans, which is a gay Republican uh, organization, resigned. So sure, there are a certain number of 
gay Republicans or people who have loved ones who are gay or trans or bi or whatever. Uh, uh, there are a certain number of Republicans who are not pro-life who might flee the party, but I don't think it's very many. I think the Republican party has built its base uh, out of cultural conservatives and evangelicals as well as economic libertarians for a long time now. So if it's not a matter of large numbers of voters switching parties, conversely, by the way, it's perfectly possible that there are a substantial number of Democrats who are pro-life, have never had the chance before to vote for a truly pro-life regime and will now be eager to do so. And so there could be offsetting trades that way. I know for a fact that there are lots of Democrats who are pro-life. I don't know if there are enough or a substantial number who would switch parties at this moment, but it's possible. But I think it's much less a question of, as our elections tend to be these days, much less a question of persuading voters to switch from one party to another and more a question of mobilization. Which party will be more, more mobilized, more energized, uh, given more enthusiasm by this event? On the conservative side, I mean, there's been a 30-year disappointment. Imagine yourself as a pro-life conservative who has been working since 1980 to try and get a Supreme Court that would overturn Roe. It's been 40 years of disappointment. This is a momentous occasion if, for people who genuinely believe this is an evil practice that must be stopped and that's been preserved only because of the dominant of uh, amoral elites uh, and, the, and the betrayal of conservatives who have put the interests of themselves and their court above what's right. If that's your perspective, then this is a momentous occasion and a positive one. And I should think that would be mobilizing in terms of enthusiasm for them. Conversely, it's, I think it would be mobilizing for a lot of Democrat-leaning women or perhaps previously undecided women. I recall vividly a few years back, a very, very smart student, a young woman who was a Republican, a conservative. And during one of our conversations, I asked about abortion and a bit of sort of a wave of her hand. She said, oh, the Republican Party would never ban abortion. Well, I don't know where that woman is now. That was a number of years ago. Uh, but I'd be curious to know what she's thinking at, at, at this moment. So frankly, what I expect to see is that the midterms are going to become much louder and a much higher turnout, be much more contested. And just the heat is up on everything. I think voter repression efforts are going to be much more hotly contested and much more severely implemented. Both sides are going to try and get advantage, as one does. So I, I, I hate to say it, I think it's going to be the same only more so, which might be the single most depressing prediction I can make about these midterms. Um, but that's, that's, I think, the most likely outcome. So with a huge political moment like this, there's obviously a lot of angles to discuss this, but is there anything we haven't covered yet Do you think it's important that we talk about or touch on? Oh, I think it, uh, there's an almost endless uh, list of topics. This decision should have been called the Pundit's Full Employment Act. Uh, but I certainly think that, that we've covered a lot of the basics here. And your listeners, if they think about this stuff that we've been talking about, will have a good basis for watching what happens next. Uh, there are more cases yet to come this term. There will be more cases next term. And the politics around these cases obviously has just started. So I'm hopeful this is the kind of conversation, I'm not trying to persuade anybody to a, a position, but that will get people to see the question in a way that, that will cause them to understand what's going on better. We're going to try to end on a positive note if we can. So returning to this question of how we can have a respectful or productive discussion on issues like this that are deeply divided culturally, is there a way that we can do it? Or do you have advice for either side of the argument that makes it a little less painful to have that talk? Uh, I'm not sure I can make it less painful for the individuals involved, uh, particularly when it's over Thanksgiving dinner with your relatives, which is the classic scenario for this conversation. It seems to me there are two really core things. Put it this way, they're obvious, but not easy. How's that? Um, the first one is take the other person's argument seriously. People who say they believe abortion is murder probably really believe abortion is murder. And if you believe that there had been 60 million murders in the last 60 years, 
because of a legal regime that permitted them to happen, you would be quite justified in feeling pretty upset about that, I hope. And just more generally, if it's the argument about same-sex marriage or anything else, take what the other side is saying seriously. But that goes both ways, of course. I have seen writing by Christian conservatives that say two people of the same sex can't possibly feel real love for each other. Well, that's not helpful. So believe that the other side means what they're saying, which does not mean you have to accept it or believe it. Just believe that they're being sincere, unless we're talking about Ted Cruz, in which case nothing is ever sincere. Um, the second thing is, and this does not really solve the problem, on the, you know, there's a lot of talk these days about that there's a problem on college campuses because people don't feel that their views are welcomed. You've heard versions of this, right? And forgive me, but I think that's absolute nonsense. And as a scholar of the First Amendment and a teacher of a few years experience, I think that's absolutely wrong in every respect. There's absolutely no reason to welcome ideas and arguments. What you need to welcome are people. It is absolutely wrong to make any student feel unwelcome on the college campus, but it's absolutely okay to make some particular idea or argument that they're making unwelcome. That's what the first, that's what free speech is all about. Expressing disagreements and critically testing ideas. The whole point is that when someone expresses an idea, it either is welcomed or not. That's what Mill was talking about when he talked about testing ideas in public conversation. So don't be ad hominem. Don't focus on the person. But conversely, I see no reason worse than that. I see no justification for being for asking people to refrain from expressing their outrage at a policy proposal or an idea or a position. Recognize that the person who's saying it probably sincerely means it. Try to be welcoming of that person. But I don't see, I don't think that the mutual respect that we owe one another as persons in any way extends to owing respect to ideas that I find odious, policy prescriptions that I find stupid, or positions that I find to be expressive of thoughtless prejudice. We appreciate you being here with us so much today. And this was some amazing knowledge that you have imparted on us. So thank you for being here. Always a pleasure. Let me know if you want to do religion and free speech in schools next. That case came down this morning. For more information, visit polisci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. 1050 Bascom is edited by Addison Lathers and Claire Salmi and produced by Amy Gangle. Thanks for listening.